0: This is an ABC podcast. Even for a country like ours, well familiar with drought, the dry spell right now in Queensland and New South Wales is one of the worst in our history. The Murray-Darling Basin is the driest that it's been since 1986, so that's the driest it's been in 30 years.
1: Parts of Australia are once again in the grip of a drought. But as most of us now know all too well, drought is a constant reality across this continent.
2: The first one that I remember as a bad one was when I was 13 and it went on for three years. Then there was another one, must have been in the 60s. And I remember while it was still on, I was down in the city and I went to see The Sound of Music. And you remember that scene when she was dancing in the summer house and the rain's pouring down? Well, it brought the tears to my eyes, the sight of all this glorious rain.
1: (laughs) In this revision here on RN with me, Annabel Quince, the story of white Australia's relationship with drought and the government policies put in place to assist farmers.
3: It took Australians or people who'd come to Australia a very long time indeed to understand that it not raining was not a strange phenomenon but an actual natural part of living in this country.
1: Historian Michael McKernan is the author of Drought, The Red Marauder.
3: Although we know that the second year of the white occupation of this country was an incredibly dry year when the crops at Sydney Cove simply failed, we don't find people talking about a recurring pattern of the absence of rain. Probably into the eighteen. 60s or 1870s. It's as late as that. It is so strange that the permanence of rainfall was so much part of the cultural baggage that people brought with them that it took them a long time to notice that in Australia it doesn't always rain.
1: But according to Linda Bottrell, Professor in Australian Public Policy at the University of Canberra, this may be because drought isn't an easy concept to define.
0: There is a vast water resources literature devoted to the impossibility of defining drought. Drought varies temporally and spatially. So a drought in Gippsland is quite different from a drought around Brewarrina, obviously. A drought in Libya is different from a drought in Bali. And it also varies temporally. Basically, a drought is a mismatch between the water that's available and the uses to which we want to put that water. So... The rainfall which would have given a bumper wheat crop in the 1880s would be defined as a drought in the 1980s because of the difference in the break-even point for a crop of wheat.
3: Rainfall records weren't kept in Australia until the 1850s, so it's very hard indeed to talk about the picture before the 1850s and it's... Almost impossible to understand why rainfall records weren't kept, but I think part of it is the point you're making, that until you have fencing and closer settlement, then if it's dry here, you move over there sort of thing. Now, that's not completely true, but as farming intensified, then drought became more of an issue and a problem, and and particularly as stock numbers increased dramatically...
1: So when did that begin, that closer settlement? And when did intensive agriculture really begin in Australia?
3: Well, it's, you can't generalise around the country because, of course, this is a vast country. But what you're looking at mostly is the closer settlement laws that, for example, come in into New South Wales in the 1860s, into Victoria about the same time, the busting up the bigger states, the attempt by the state to take back the land that the squatters had simply assumed and settle many more people on the land. Now, those those laws were successful in the in the 1860s. 1870s and 1880s to some extent. And that's when drought becomes a major issue because you've got people on much smaller properties whose livelihood is destroyed or could be destroyed by drought. And so you start getting a very close record of drought then. And looking at the figures, Australia has had devastating drought in 1895 to 1903, 1958, 1968, 1982, 83 and 1991, 95 and of course now this enormous drought that we're living through. Major droughts in a whole other series of years and severe droughts uh, again in a whole series of years and this is from the centennial of Federation Special Australian Yearbook, which indicates to me that we've had drought in some part of Australia almost permanently since rainfall records were taken. And that, again, is something I think that people would find very hard to accept or believe, but the records would indicate that somewhere in Australia at some time, some part is always in drought.
4: The country was completely bare, not a blade of grass to be seen and we passed sheep coming into the watering places, a windmill with troughs. And they staggered in. That was in New South Wales. Then it came over the border, went into Queensland, and the water holes were so low that they were only really bog, mud and a little bit of water. And cattle would, in very weakened condition, would go down to get a drink from this meagre little pool of water. And of course they had to plough through the mud and that was it, they couldn't come out again. They just couldn't pull themselves out. And many of them were shot there, others just died there. It was a most tragic thing.
3: You're talking millions and millions of sheep or millions of head of cattle. I mean, I've had people describe for me the terrible sounds of animals in distress from lack of water and the appalling deaths that they suffered. And one of the major things that they had to do is cart water. They would go to the nearest supply of water and cart it back to their properties to keep some stock going. But... You'll read accounts of people realising that they were using as much energy in the horses to get to the water and back again as they were doing good. But in the 1880s, with the arrival of the railways, particularly in Victoria, which was much better connected by rail, the government ran drought trains. They would send off trains with huge tanks. Of water and release this water into sort of holding ponds by the side of the railways and farmers would then again come to that point and take the water back to their farms. So a lot of the work was simply trying to keep a minimal amount of stock alive with some sort of water.
1: And during that drought in the, in the 1880s, did people go on the road as well? Was there a yes, lot of people? Yes,
3: very much so. The long paddock, it's called. And so you had the right to move along the stock routes and there would be a width of stock routes so that you might be able to keep some stock alive by moving them along the stock routes and letting them feed as they walked. But you had to keep moving. You couldn't stop and just say, oh, well, this looks good. I'll, I'll stay here.
4: The drought came really bad. So we all went on the road. Well, there was no feed at home, and it was all over, all over the district. It wasn't just you know, an isolated area. It was everywhere. No, we used to drive the, the sheep during the day and break them at night, and uh, at uh, we'd have a day off. Each one of us would have one day off, which would come around, sort of rotating around, and our day off was to take the horses from this camp to the next camp and hobble them out you yeah, give them water so they got water and put them out and feed and help them out. That was their day off. And, of course, collected the wood for the cook, which Mum was, the cook.
3: One of the interesting things about drought is that every major drought, every significant drought is always described as the worst in Australia's history. A lot of people would look back at that Federation drought when it was possible to walk from, in parts, to walk from New South Wales to Victoria or vice versa. The Murray had completely dried up and you could certainly ride a horse and cart across the Murray in various parts. A lot of people describe the Federation drought as as the worst drought Australia's ever, ever endured. And in the book I tell the story of Dame Nellie Melba, the great Australian celebrity and singer, coming back to Australia in I think it's 1903 and travelling by train from Brisbane where she got off the boat through to Melbourne where she was going to be feted and looking out the window and just being appalled and horrified by the conditions that she she was witnessing. And indeed she, she made a bit of a boo-boo, she decided that she'd write off to many of her very wealthy friends and sort of started sort of appeal to help the Australian farmers. And of course, this went down very poorly indeed. People saying, well, we don't depend on the uh, the charity of others. We can look after ourselves. Thanks very much. And she got into a bit of hot water. But it was well meant because she was just so astonished by the conditions that she was looking at out of her train window on that trip through Eastern Australia.
1: Well, look, that's interesting because that raises the whole question of what assistance was available to farmers in those early years. So in the 1880 drought, Mm. in the Federation drought, was there any either, did any of the colonies or later on during the Federation drought, did the Commonwealth or any of the states offer any assistance to farmers?
3: Assistance in some sorts, I've, I've already mentioned the drought trains that travelled around trying to get bring water at least to central collection points and so on, and that was all free, that was done free. There were some concessions with the movement of hay around and also some concessions with stock movements, but there was nothing like a payment of farmers in drought or assistance of that kind because, of course, it's only with the Federation of Australia anyway that we started thinking in terms of very modest aged pensions. So it wasn't thought that the state had any responsibility in terms of handing out welfare payments to people. So that's quite a recent development in terms of drought, which means, of course, that the question comes, did Australians die of drought? You know, was it so bad and were people so so impoverished that they could die? And the answer is yes. We There are records of people who are, who starve to death because they haven't got sufficient to feed themselves.
1: After the Federation drought ended, mm. World War I occurred, mm-hmm. and that was followed by soldiers coming back and wanting to move out to the land and get sold to Settlers' Block. And mm. again, that happened again after the Second World War. Yes. So in a country where we'd already seen a number of severe droughts, I'm just wondering why after both the First World War and the Second World War, when there was a drought in between, people were still wanting to go onto the land.
3: Yeah, most of my work has been in military history. So I came to a study of drought as a bit of an outsider. And I can't tell you the shock I experienced when I was sitting in the State Library of Victoria reading a local newspaper. And I came across an account of a journalist going up and talking to men in the Mallee about the drought that they were then enduring in the late 1920s. And this fellow, who'd been on his block as a soldier settler for 11 years, said to the journalist that he'd rather do 10 years at the war than one year in drought in the Mallee. And I thought to myself, I mean, I knew the Western Front. I've read about it, I've read men's diaries, I've, I've thought about it, I've walked over it, I've heard the stories, I've, I've told the stories of the horrors of that war. And I was sitting in a library and I thought to myself, drought is 10 times worse than that war. That's just unbelievable. Why did they go to soldier settlement blocks? I think the answer is that these fellows who'd spent time, particularly in the First World War, were so sick of taking orders from people, so sick of their lives being at the beck and call of others, of placing their own existence in the hands of a general or, or whatever, that they wanted to be independent. They wanted to be shot of the boss. They wanted to manage and run their own lives. And so deeply scarred by war, they come back to the soldier settlement blocks and everybody doing this with the best intentions, government carving up, as you say, these 320-acre blocks. Some of them survived because they were lucky enough to get good land and they had a bit of capital behind them. But many of them, again, with with the drought at the end of the 1920s, just walked off their land because they didn't have enough capital and they didn't have any water. And it is the story of Australia. War and drought.
1: This revision here on RN with me, Annabelle Quince, the story of White Australia's relationship with drought. Well,
2: there have always been dust storms, right up until recent years. There was one particular one, that it came through Indoor and then it came onto Mayfield, and this I think it was the worst one I remember. And we looked out and there was this great copper-coloured cloud. The sun was shining on the on the dust as it was coming up in a great copper-coloured cloud. Then it went over the sun, and The world went black. We went into the rooms and shut them. It was dark in the rooms. And uh, when it was over, the sand was on the floor in waves. It It was just like beach sand.
1: At the end of World War II, returning servicemen again took up soldier settler blocks. And while at first many of these blocks were green and fertile, it wasn't long before they were engulfed by yet another drought. And like those before them, these new farmers were shocked and surprised when the rain failed to arrive.
3: There's no doubt about that. They they just didn't anticipate it, didn't expect it. And when it came, initially, thought this is just a horrendous act of God which must be once in a thousand years. And, and, and as I say, it takes them ages to come to the fact that every 10, 15, whatever years, there will be significant drought uh, in their area.
1: Drought was defined as a natural disaster and therefore was a state responsibility. But in the 1930s, the Commonwealth Government became involved in disaster relief.
0: The first intervention by the Commonwealth in disaster relief was in 1939 when the Commonwealth gave £1,000 to Tasmania for bushfire relief. And from that point on, the Commonwealth became involved on a sort of an ad hoc basis until about the 1960s by doing some dollar-for-dollar matching of state expenditure, providing for personal hardship relief and so on. But certainly for... Nearly the first half of the 20th century, disaster relief and therefore drought relief was a state responsibility.
1: And how was it worked out? What was the kind of criteria then for giving people relief and what kind of relief were they given?
0: Most of the relief was the sort of relief that we still hear calls for fodder transport Subsidies and so on. In 1966, there was a particular piece of Commonwealth legislation passed to provide drought assistance to Queensland and New South Wales. And Robert Menzies actually promised the states that the Commonwealth would reimburse them for a range of agreed drought relief measures and didn't really put a ceiling on it at that stage. He basically told the Parliament that he had promised the states that he would meet any deficit caused as a result of drought relief.
1: In the 1970s, this ad hoc arrangement was formalised.
0: That set up a standing arrangement between the Commonwealth and state governments, which is still in place today, where the states decide when a disaster has occurred and declare it, and they responsible for responding until they'd spent to a certain threshold. And the Commonwealth then came in with, again, personal hardship relief and restoration of public assets. And those arrangements continued right through until 1989 for drought, and they continue till today for all sorts of other disasters.
1: During the 1980s, during yet another dry season, this open-ended commitment to drought relief and our understanding of drought itself began to be questioned.
3: As you're no doubt well aware, Australia is now in the grip of one of its worst ever droughts. Droughts, of course, are nothing new to Australians, but it's worth pausing to consider the size of the catastrophe that is life on the land in 1982.
0: In the 1980s, drought came to dominate the Natural Disaster Relief Program. And in fact, towards the end of the 1980s, particularly in Queensland, nearly all the disaster relief was going to drought relief. And it was becoming... Increasingly obvious that science was moving on. We were beginning to understand the impact of the El Nino and the Southern Oscillation Index. So it was becoming increasingly untenable to argue that drought was a disaster in the way other disasters are, in terms of sudden, unexpected, and unpredictable. So we were getting better with the science. We were getting a better understanding of rainfall patterns in Australia and what triggered dry years. So that was the first point. The second point was that drought was dominating the NDRA. And the third point was that there were political reasons for change. There'd been an expose by the Courier-Mail in Queensland in 1989 of what was seen as fairly generous use of the drought relief by the National Party government. And in fact, the then finance minister, Peter Walsh, described the NDRA in Queensland as being used as some sort of national party slush fund. So there was an impetus as well to tighten up the way drought relief was being delivered in Queensland. So what the government did was it established a drought policy review task force in 1990 to look at how drought relief should be delivered in light of our advanced understanding of climate patterns and to try and deliver a form of drought relief that didn't just become a subsidy for non-viable farmers but was actually consistent with the sorts of structural adjustment programs that the government had in place for agriculture. And what kind of things did they come up with? Well the main recommendations that were made by the drought policy review task force was firstly that drought should not be reinstated within the natural disaster relief arrangements the review concluded that drought is a normal part of the australian climate and that farming is an uncertain occupation in australia so the drought policy review task force argued that farmers should adopt a risk management approach to climate risk, the way they adopt a risk management approach to commodity price fluctuations and other economic pressures that they face. And the task force also argued that there was a need for a coordinated national drought policy agreed between Commonwealth and state governments. I'm Ellen Fanning and first up tonight the Federal Government has released what it calls an historic and radical plan to encourage farmers to see drought as a normal part of their existence. The long-awaited National Drought Policy encourages farmers to plan ahead for dry times and to employ more sustainable farming practices.
4: The agreement that I
3: announced today with the states is an historic breakthrough in terms of drought policy for this country. It is radically different from what we had previously which in the main relied on treating drought in isolation and waiting for it to happen before measures were taken to remedy it as
4: distinct from our policy...
0: The main difference really was that the National Drought Policy was trying very hard to focus support on supporting farmers who were viable in the long term. There was a great deal of concern, particularly amongst agricultural economists, that drought relief provided a subsidy for otherwise non-viable or non-productive farm businesses. And if you remember the the general economic environment in the 1980s and the early 1990s. We weren't in the business of providing farm subsidies or providing subsidies to non-viable businesses. So the concern was that we focused drought policy on those groups in the community who, if it weren't for the drought, would be doing well and that that the drought was so bad they couldn't have been expected to prepare for it.
1: Once a region was classified as being in an exceptional drought, a whole raft of relief assistance followed. So there was a strong financial incentive for farmers experiencing a drought to argue that it was an exceptional one.
0: The exceptional circumstances were not defined in the legislation or the second reading speech. A process was established with the Rural Adjustment Scheme Advisory Council, which has now become the National Rural Advisory Council, NRAC. And the role of that council was to advise the minister when such exceptional circumstances existed. Now, because we were in the situation we were in 1993, policymakers were very quickly faced with the question of how to define whether a drought was exceptional. So by... 1993-94 there was a lot of discussion going on about how exceptional circumstances were going to be defined.
1: Under this new legislation drought was defined as a natural part of farming and farmers were required to prepare for it and if they didn't they wouldn't be given assistance by the government. The only exception being in exceptional circumstances, that is a drought that was so extreme that no reasonable farmer could have predicted it. The only problem was there was no clear definition of an exceptional circumstance.
0: The idea of exceptional circumstance was never clearly defined, it was open to constant political debate and bargaining and that was the main flaw in the national drought policy. I mean, in policy terms, it was a very good idea to have a predictable policy with various components to address household needs and the needs of the business and so on, but it did hang off this idea of getting an exceptional circumstances declaration and the actual process and the components of that declaration were the subject of ongoing dispute for over a decade as to what should be taken into account and how the declaration should be made and what happened to people who weren't in the areas. And, of course, part of the problem was the idea of drawing lines on maps to distinguish between people who were in EC and those who weren't. So it it was a problem, and without a clear definition that was broadly agreed, it it was one of the things, I think, that caused the national drought policy to unravel. So
1: when was the exceptional circumstance model stopped and what difference did it make? How did things change when it was stopped?
0: Well, the Exceptional Circumstances model was scrapped following the 2008 Review of National Drought Policy, which was conducted by the Productivity Commission and associated with that was a report on the potential impact of climate change on the frequency and severity of Australian drought and a separate report on the impact on rural communities, the social impact of drought. Following that tripartite inquiry, the exceptional circumstances program was wound up. There was an intergovernmental agreement with the states which was introduced a few years later but really I mean my perception is that we really no longer have a comprehensive and solid national drought policy in Australia and I think we're seeing that in recent weeks with return to a lot more ad hoc policy making. The government has announced an emergency relief package with special cash payments of up to $12,000 and extra money for counselling and mental health support services in drought-affected areas. What we're seeing is the same sorts of problems that we've seen in the past, that we are seeing ad hoc knee-jerk reactions when drought is in place. So, for example, the half-a-billion-dollar package that was announced by the New South Wales government a few weeks ago was introducing transactions-based subsidies, which had actually been agreed to be wound up under the original national drought policy in the early 1990s. The welfare program has the same problems that farm welfare programs have had for decades, and that is that they are responding to a problem that we don't actually know to what extent it actually exists. So we haven't measured farm poverty in Australia in any comprehensive way for over 40 years, and as a consequence, there's a bit of guesswork going on. So people are clearly in difficulty, and we've got welfare programs in place for farmers with very generous assets tests to allow for the fact that farmers are income poor and asset rich. But we haven't actually really looked into the extent, nature and causes of farm poverty in Australia. And I think until we do that, we're going to continue to have these kind of patchwork programs. So the program that's in place at the moment, the Farm Household Allowance, is time limited. Well, I can see why you would time limit stuff so that people don't become dependent long term on welfare. but. In a sense, you need to find out why they are needing welfare in the first place, whether it is in fact because a particular drought is particularly severe or because there's some underlying structural problems that mean that the farms are perhaps not viable long term, irrespective of where there's a drought. So we need to be looking a bit more carefully at why there are low incomes in rural Australia, And on the basis of some actual solid research, then thinking about what the best responses are. I'm just wondering, we've talked
1: a lot about the notion that drought is inevitable. And does that also mean that there are certain regions and certain parts of Australia that are always going to be confronted by droughts and in essence makes them almost economically unviable to farm? And they're the kinds of issues that if we're going to live in a country that is so prone to drought, that we just have to come to terms with.
0: That's a really difficult question. I mean, as you'd be aware, and ex- there was the experiment in South Australia with the goida line, which, you know, north of this, we couldn't possibly farm because of drought. But then you get a few good years and it's possible to make a lot of money in those areas that otherwise are drought-afflicted. So it's it's a difficult one to deal with. But I think that would become part of a conversation about, I mean, for example, we don't know whether it's particular regions which are having very bad income outcomes. So, it's possible that people in areas that are very, very dr- badly drought affected or often very dry actually make such good money in the good years that it's it just has to be part of their planning and part of their income smoothing. I think that conversation is part of the conversation about what's happening with farm incomes. So, It's possible that there are areas that perhaps are going to need to adapt, certainly with a a changing climate, to the types of farm enterprises that they're running. But I don't think, you know, declaring areas out of bounds to agriculture is the answer.
3: Just looking at the major droughts in Australia from the 1850s onwards, it has occurred to me that drought only ever ends when there is not just rain, but a deluge.
1: So we'll know the current drought is over when we have a flood.
3: That's right. That's my theory and I'm sticking to it. I mean, I don't think it's scientific, but it just seems to be a pattern.
2: Well, floods, floods were really exciting when there was a really big one, you know. The house at Mayfield was sort of oh, on, on the ridge, as I say, above the, flu- the spread of the flood water and every morning and wake up and see the flood coming a bit higher and shining in the sun. It was really exciting. I used to love a flood
1: the voice of Francie Hammond. You also heard from Edith McFarlane, Big Campbell and Jeannie Reynolds, who were all interviewed by Patricia Fitzsimons, the director of the Braided Channels Project. The rear vision sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabelle Quince.